They're still counting the votes to determine the nature of the representative or legislative branch of our federal government. We do not yet know exactly how it will look when the votes are all counted. But we are here today to worship the King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and I want you to know that he is not, nor will he ever be, susceptible to a defeat in an election. Are you not thankful to be citizens of his kingdom? This is our temporary place of residence. We're on our way to our permanent location. And brothers and sisters, it's far better than anything you or I have ever known on this earth. So to encourage you today, they're not telling you that on CNN or Fox or Newsmax or ABC or NBC or whatever you're watching. But I want to tell you, that's my privilege. I'm here to proclaim good news to you. Just as Luke the physician proclaimed good news, a doctor with good news. Today, Lord willing, we're going to finish up with chapter 4. Next Sunday, Kathy and I will be away. As I say, we have orders to be present in North Carolina for our grandson's first birthday. So please excuse our absence. Greg Polden will be preaching next week. We look forward to being back with you, Lord willing, the following Sunday, at which point we will drop back and pick up those first two chapters of Luke. Do you remember how conspicuously we went past those in order to get into this series? And so that's uh, that's our intention. Lord willing, as my friend used to say, if he's not, we won't. Luke chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. That's where we are. And I want to remind you as we open this book. We have before us the very words of God. We're not ashamed of saying that. We know it's, um, it's not exactly popular in many circles, even in some quote-unquote church circles. Some people want to say it contains the Word of God, or somehow it mysteriously becomes the Word of God. But we want to say, as the writers of old and those who have followed the Lord Jesus down through the long ages, this is the Word of God. Luke. Chapter 4, beginning with verse 31. Hear the word of the Lord. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching. For his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases, brought them to him. 
And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached to you. Amen. Well, you know what you get from me are stories. Because I've had so many told me through the years, and you get to be my victims as a captive audience. To recollect things that I generally don't get a chance to tell. And one of my favorite ones of what I heard when I was growing up in my childhood was about Daniel Cook. Who had survived the Civil War, made it back to the mountains of North Carolina and lived in the confines of what is now in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park, Little Cataloochee. Just above Coggins Branch, right below Davidson Gap in one direction or Ball Gap in the other. His cabin has been reconstructed there on the spot. And many a person has hiked by it or otherwise has gone in that cabin without knowing the story of Daniel Cook, who in the summer of 1907 was succumbing to cancer. His son-in-law, Will Messer, was a man of means who had been successful as a farmer selling apples in Newport, Tennessee, out of Catalucci, and he sent all the way to Chicago, Illinois, for a doctor. They had gotten his name out of a magazine. A man who supposedly had a cure for cancer. They paid his railroad fare all the way from Chicago to Knoxville and then to Newport where he boarded a logging train and made his way all the way to Big Creek and then crossed the mountain to Little Catalooch. And he treated Daniel Cook, who later died. They thought. They laid him on a cooling board. They sent for the coroner over in Waynesville. They got the casket built and ready, waiting for the coroner's final word, declaring him dead. But somehow, in the middle of the examination, Daniel Cook revived and sat straight up on the cooling board and wondered what in the world was going on. He lived another seven months, and he died. And that time, he stayed dead. And in January 1908, they buried him in the little Catalucci Baptist Church Cemetery. And I can take you to the spot to this day. I know exactly where it is. It seems as though no matter what our experience in life may be, whatever successes or failures we may go through, that invariably death calls. And with the call comes the end of life. It's coming for all of us. There's no avoiding it. Even with the great advancements in medical technology and medical science, for which we are exceedingly grateful. I'm looking at two doctors, both of which have distinguished haircuts, and for whom I am very grateful. (laughs) I want to give thanks for that medical science and nurses that I'm also looking at through the room. And yet, with all of those advancements, we still are very finite in our physical existence here. And into this mess that we call the fall came a man born of a virgin demonstrating power over death. And Jesus Christ, our great physician, 
is able to heal as no one ever has or ever could. And so he teaches, he preaches, he proclaims the gospel. Notice that when he comes to Capernaum, the city in Galilee, which no longer is in existence, yet nevertheless, on the Sabbath, he was teaching. He was observing that day that God had set aside to be his. Having created the world in the space of six days by the word of his power and all very good, he declared that seventh day to be a day of rest. And the Lord Jesus, who was the means by which creation came into existence, submitted himself to the covenant under which creation came into existence, and he observed the Sabbath day. He who made the law kept the law. But as he taught, everyone was astonished. They were absolutely amazed. He was a man who had no particular credentials to present them, at least not outwardly. There was no sheepskin on his wall in his bedroom in Nazareth. He was the son of a carpenter, or so they all thought. But yet, unlike the scribes and their teachers who taught tediously and who simply referred to others who supposedly had authority, Jesus had an authority which resided in himself as he proclaimed the word of God. He spoke and acted with power and authority to deliver and heal. You see it in verse 32. They were astonished at his teaching. His word possessed authority. You see it down in verse 35 as he called forth the demon, how everyone was amazed at the power in his words. Again, it's emphasized in verse 39 as he rebukes a fever. And then in verse 41, again, in another instance of deliverance from demons, how they came out crying. They couldn't do otherwise as Jesus gave the command. And it is a reminder to us that the proclamation of God's word is an essential element of worship. But sometimes people like to make a false dichotomy between worship and the preaching of the word. I've heard people say that. Said, Well, after worship, the preacher spoke. I remember someone saying it exactly that way. We still are engaged in worship at this very moment. We're doing one of the things that God said to do in the context of worship. Yes, singing is worship. I don't want to take anything away at all from what Gordon and Carol do. They are leading us in another essential element of worship, which is the singing of God's praises, psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. But the proclamation of God's word is essential. The Lord Jesus provides us with that example. Yes, he goes about doing good, but he goes about preaching and teaching. And yet. We also see in him that ministering to physical needs goes hand in hand with teaching and preaching. There's not one to the exclusion of the other. And that's how we often are. You know, we tend to get unbalanced in our approach in a lot of ways to a lot of things. Out of kilter. Lopsided. It's all preaching and teaching. Or other people would say, well, it's not about what you say. It's about what you do. It's both. The word must be proclaimed and the word must be lived out. We should be engaged in worship like this, but we also should be engaged in doing and caring for the sick and helping and healing. That's part of what we've done today through the giving of our tithes and offerings. As God's people throughout the ages have been generous and kind and doing the Lord's work in this way. 
How many hospitals are dedicated to the names, obviously, of Christians? You've got Baptist hospitals and Presbyterian hospitals and Methodist hospitals. You've got St. Matthew. You've got St. Jude. You've got St. John. On and on. All bearing testimony to Christians following the lead of the Lord Jesus to go about doing good. So it's not one or the other. I've often said to our missionaries at Mission of the World when I've had the responsibility of charging the new crops as they come through, as I call them, that if you graph it and you have the ministry of word and deed, and let's say one is a red line on a graph and the other one is a blue line on a graph, do you do ministry of the word or you do ministry in deed? And I tell them, It shouldn't be divided up like that. It ought to be one line. Let's make it purple because we're combining the two. Stop with these false divisions. Because we see it in the Lord Jesus. He is our example. And then we have to come to grips with this reality, do we not? That the devil and demons are real. Now, that's not popular. People want to talk about how the devil is just, well... He's just a metaphor for wrong and evil. And then they want to talk about images of a guy in a little red suit with a pitchfork. Why a pitchfork? I used one a lot when I was growing up, forking hay out of the hayloft. And, and, you know, they're good tools. They're good instruments. I don't know why that thing got relegated to the devil and gets a bad name. Pitchforks are very helpful. But it's nothing like that. The devil is real. He is a... A spirit, an angelic spirit, he was created by God and rebelled against God. He and other angels created by the Lord rebelled against God and fell. Now, when did that happen? I don't know. It's kind of novelty, isn't it? Did I fail to study this week? You know, this whole matter of demons, let me just be honest with you, I've was telling a friend of mine, I said, you know, every time I preach on a passage like this, I realize I need to study more and find out more about demons. And then I immediately want to say, no, I'm good. I know more than I want to know. But in Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, we have it most explicitly stated in other places inferred that this created being, call him Lucifer, Satan, the devil, is an actual being rebelled against God, took a third of the other angels with him in the rebellion, and they constitute this demonic host. Now, I'm not going to tell you any more than I know. We don't know a lot, but let's be confident in this. We know everything we need to know from God's Word. There are extra sources that supply other information, but don't go there. God's Word is sufficient. These beings are real. But what we need to know is that they are limited in their power and they have an expiration date. They are not omniscient. They are not omnipotent. Did you hear me when I said that he is a created being? That means he is not equal with God. He has been created by God. God has no opposite. He is sovereign. He has all power and authority. And there's a great mystery in all of this as to why the Lord has allowed things to unfold in the way that they have. And for that, we simply have to say, trust him. God knows what he's doing. But in the meantime, evil is real. And these angelic spirits, these demons, are able to possess unbelievers or otherwise oppress people. 
Even believers can be oppressed by demons, but not possessed by demons. If you're a believer, you are inhabited by the Holy Spirit. And I'll tell you right now, nobody's coming into his house and taking over when he rules. That's a fact. And we're promised a sure defense. Among other places, Ephesians chapter 6. It's a good reference for you to recognize there that the Apostle Paul tells us to be equipped and to put on that full armor of God to be a means of defense against these satanic beings. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, down in verse 12, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. A reality. But one, we are able to withstand as believers in Jesus Christ. His victory at the cross secures our defense. It's good to have a certain defense, isn't it? So be confident in that. First John chapter 4, verse 4. Little children, you are from God. And have overcome those deceiving spirits that he speaks of in that passage. Get this. For he, capital H, who is in you is greater than he, little h, who was in the world. Be confident in that. Is Satan real? Are demons real? Yes. Should we be sober concerning Their intentions, after all, Satan is like a lion. He's going about seeking to devour, not just to make people uncomfortable. He's out to kill and destroy. But the Lord that is within us is greater. 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. That's a Christmas text right there. Why did Jesus come? There you have a summary. To destroy the works of the devil. So be aware of the existence of demonic beings just as we see them presented here, but also be confident in the power of the one who dwells within us as we trust in him. Now, as we see the Lord Jesus dealing with these demons, by the way, this this one interrupted a worship service. He's in the synagogue and he's teaching, and this guy cries out with a loud voice. And that word ha, interesting, it's the only place in the New Testament that little word appears in the Greek. It's a It's a word... It's almost like a boo and a hiss. This demon is out to oppose the Lord Jesus. That's their purpose in life, is to oppose the things of God. And Jesus is not caught off guard in the slightest. But in his crying out and in his expression against the Lord Jesus, he demonstrates that he has a correct theology. Which tells us that correct knowledge about the Lord by itself is insufficient for salvation. The devil's got good theology. He could pass a systematic theology final without studying. He already knows it. J.C. Ryle, one of my favorite commentators, has something here worth listening to. He says, let us beware of an unsanctified knowledge of Christianity. It is a dangerous possession, but a fearfully common one in these latter days. And he's writing in the 19th century. It's common back then, even more now. Those things are common. It's common sense. It's rare. We may know the Bible intellectually and have no doubt about the truth of its contents, 
We may have our memories well stored with its leading texts and be able to talk glibly about its leading doctrines. And all this time, the Bible may have no influence over our hearts and wills and consciences. We may, in reality, be nothing better than the devils. You weren't expecting me to call you names when you came to church, were you? But think about it. He says, let it never Content us to know religion with our heads only. We may go on all our lives saying, I know that and I know that and sink at last into hell with the words upon our lips. Let us see that our knowledge bears fruit in our lives. Does our knowledge of sin make us hate it? Does our knowledge of Christ make us trust and love him? Does our knowledge of God's will make us strive to do it? Does our knowledge of the fruits of the Spirit make us labor to show them in our daily behavior? Knowledge of this kind is really profitable. Any other religious knowledge will only add to our condemnation at the last day. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And remember that Judas Iscariot was among the twelve. He was with Jesus presumably for three years, heard and saw all that Jesus did, but in the end demonstrated not faith in the Savior. With all of his knowledge, he still acted out of selfish greed and in response to the sinful corruption in his own heart. We all must examine ourselves. We need to see from this passage, though, that when Jesus delivers, the effects are immediate and life-changing. Look at verse 35. But when Jesus rebuked the demon and said, Be silent, come out of him, the demon threw the man down in their midst and came out of him, having done him no harm. It seems to me that we see evidence of Luke's investigative skills at work here. Can't you see him talking to people who remembered when that happened? And he said, well, what happened to the guy? And they said, oh, nothing. It didn't hurt him a bit. He got right up afterwards. He was unharmed. A physician would have been interested in knowing that. But the demon came out. He couldn't do anything else. Had no other choice. Notice also in the case with, uh, with Simon Peter's mother-in-law. She was immediately well. She got up and was serving everyone. It wasn't a matter of her having to recover from the fever that was then gone from her. She was immediately well and had full strength. And we see it time and again in the New Testament. Immediately, lepers are cleansed. The blind receive sight. Another one rises up and picked up his bed, walked away. Immediately, immediately the flow of blood from the woman was stopped. Another one got up. Another lady was immediately made straight, able to walk. Another was healed. Another made strong. Scales or something like them fell from Paul's eyes. Another rose immediately. When Jesus comes into our lives, he transforms us. We're never the same. Now, it may take us a while to get to that point of transformation. But when Jesus transforms a life, it is a life transformed It can't be anything but. And so that's good news. And thus proclaiming the good news of God's kingdom is the priority in Christian ministry. Just it was the priority of the Lord Jesus. 
having done all that he did, having healed the sick, cast out demons, rebuked the fever, performing miracles that are not even recorded in specificity. What, what were all the ailments that these people had that were brought to Jesus? And all of them healed. By the way, as he laid hands on them, notice that Jesus touched them. He even laid hands on lepers. That was that was forbidden, and he did it anyway. Because Jesus could not be contaminated by the things of this life. Rather, he brought life and healing to all that he touched. As C.S. Lewis said, it's like death working backwards. As Jesus performed those miracles. And yet, he was not sidelined by it. He said, in so many words, I have a mission. That is, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns. So Jesus primarily came to preach and proclaim the good news, the gospel. For I was sent for this purpose. He was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so to us, Jesus says, the gospel must be proclaimed to all nations must first be proclaimed to all the nations. That's when the end will come. That's the great priority. That's the great event that's taking place now. And we all get to be a part of it. You're a part of something that matters when you're a part of the body of Christ. When you've repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus, you're a part of this grand and glorious movement wherein the great physician continues to heal the sick. Even though we die physically, that one indestructible life by his death on the cross has purchased for all who trust in him everlasting life. And we never know when it will come. It was the 11th of November, 1918. Word came to Waynesville, North Carolina. I know, another story. Word came to Waynesville, North Carolina, that Mr. Curtis, who was running the one little small telephone switchboard in town, that the armistice had been signed and was in place, and the war was over. He posted it on his window outside the office, and within minutes, word spread. Church bells began ringing, factory whistles began blowing. Papa said women were dancing in the street. Everybody was celebrating. It was a wondrous event, for at, at least in Europe, at the 11th hour on the 11th day of the 11th month. The Great War had come to an end. But in the middle of all of that celebration, Will and Ida McClure up on Plot Creek got a telegram that their oldest son had died, not as a result of wounds. He was at Paris Island, South Carolina, and had succumbed to influenza as that pandemic was sweeping the world. He had died on the 9th of November, two days before the war ended. So in the middle of all the celebrating, my great-great-grandparents were grieving the loss of their oldest son, and it was on the 13th of November that his body arrived at the depot in Hazelwood about 10.20 in the morning. And they carried the casket up to Plot Creek and held a service at the home where my parents now live. Reverend Frank Arrington was the preacher. And they took Uncle Henry, my papa's favorite uncle, took his body to Green Hill Cemetery and there interred him. The world celebrates. The world has its moods. There are all kinds of events that come and go. But I'm telling you, your life is but a vapor. We are here only for a moment. If you live to be 110 years old, it's for a moment. And there is only one person who can get you out of here alive. Jesus Christ, 
is the great physician. He has power over demons. He has power over death. And that's why I told you, brothers and sisters, I don't care what the networks say. There's good news. Jesus has come to save people like us. How do I know that? Because the Bible says he came to save sinners. There's a lot I don't know. But like old John Newton of old, I know this. I am a great sinner. But he is a great Savior. Trust him and love him with all your heart. I plead with you. Let's pray. Father in heaven, oh, how you have done such great things. When I looked to the east this morning and saw the sun rising, I thought, oh, no artist on earth can paint like that. This past week, I looked at the moon in the sky. I thought there's no light fixture that anybody's invented that can shine like that. Lord, you've demonstrated your presence and your greatness and your power, but oh, how you've shown us your love. Inasmuch as Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, has come to die for us. Here in his love, not that we love you, but that you first loved us. And so, our Father, please bless the feebling attempt of this preacher to proclaim one who is more glorious than I could ever describe, whose beauty in its grandeur is greater than anything we've ever beheld. That each here, whether seated in the sanctuary or watching online, may see Jesus. And by the power of your spirit, experience that transformation and healing that he alone can effect. Or otherwise, confirm to our hearts the faith that we have and remind us of the cause that we have to rejoice that there is a Redeemer. In His name we pray. Amen. There is. Let's stand and sing of Him.